Well, we are in a series. If you're new here today, we're in a series through uh, the New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles. And we are, uh, this is the 23rd message in that series. I don't know how many there are going to be when we're fully done, but they're going to be a bunch and we got a ways to go. So I'm excited about this series. We're in, today we're in chapter eight. And would you stand with me and let's read our scripture text together. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, Allow me to uh, to just state right up front that there exists in chapter 8 two interwoven storylines that have to do with the ministry of this man, Philip. And as you can see from the scripture references there at the end, um, uh, or as you became aware if you were attempting to read with us from your own Bible, I've carved out um, one of them, which we will address today. I did a little surgery on the text and separated these two interwoven stories. And uh, the other having to do with a man named Simon Magus, we will address next week. Now let's uh, begin this morning with a simple question. Who was this guy, Philip? Who was Philip? Last week we read in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And if you weren't here uh, for last week's message, the scattering of believers from Jerusalem uh, took place because of a great persecution of Christians that uh, broke out under the leadership of a man named Saul. Uh, Immediately in verse 5 we read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Uh, So the first thing we learn here about Philip is that he's exhibit A for those who were scattered, who went about preaching the word. Secondly, in introducing Philip, it's important to clarify that this isn't the Philip who was one of the twelve apostles, appointed by Jesus. This instead is the Philip we read about back in chapter 6, and along with Stephen, this Philip was uh, one of the seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who were chosen and were appointed to administer the distribution of food and other resources to the widows in the church in Jerusalem. Philip was a remarkable man. Like the other six, he was a Hellenistic Jew, which means that he was religiously Jewish, but in every other way, ethnically, culturally, linguistically, Greek. And what we observe regarding Stephen when we 
studied chapters 6 and 7 can be said of Philip as well. Uh, He was not a deacon, but he served tables. He was not an apostle, but he was a worker of signs and wonders. He was not a prophet, but he was a powerful preacher. Apart from Acts chapter 6 and 8, the only other reference to Philip in the New Testament is found in chapter 21. On that occasion, Paul and company visited his home in Caesarea, and Luke recorded, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, um, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Philip's evangelistic ministry had clearly continued throughout the intervening years, and so he was called here, an evangelist. He was known to be uh, an effective evangelist. Luke's comment that Philip's four daughters prophesied tells us that they themselves were preachers of the Word of God. And I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have five preachers living under the same roof, but but that was their reality. And notice with me uh, another fact regarding Philip that's really less obvious, but but really important because what we're what we're seeing here, part of what we're seeing as we're studying the book of Acts is the growth of the church, the expansion of the kingdom of God, the expansion of the gospel witness in the world. Philip was a second-generation leader. Um, what do I mean by a second-generation leader? Just this, that, that Philip was one who was continuing the work that had been begun by Jesus and the apostles. He was not himself an apostle but he had come to personal faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the apostles. And up until chapter 6, verse 6, the, the original apostles played the prominent role uh, in Luke's record of the life of the church and the growth of the church. But at verse 7 of chapter 6, and, and it just happens very subtly, but the verse 7 of chapter 6, the emphasis shifts to a second-generation of leaders in the church, um, predominantly in these early chapters, uh, Stephen, who we have uh, looked at the last week or two, uh, then Philip, and then Paul, and then Barnabas. And in fact, from now on, except for the pioneering work of, of Peter in the home of Cornelius, which we'll see in chapter 11, or chapter 10, rather, is these uh, newer leaders who become the standard bearers for the proclamation of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom. The apostles in Jerusalem weren't, weren't sidelined, but their ministry um, shifted into one of oversight of all that was happening in the mission of the church. And it's in that role that we'll see Peter and John in today's text. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5 then, this is the Philip who went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, a man of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, a servant of the church, an evangelist, and a worker of signs and wonders. The region of Samaria was between Judea to the south and Galilee in the north. So if you can picture in your mind a map of Israel, um, you go north and uh, and uh, west from Jerusalem. Uh, that region, and what we you might think of as kind of uh, 
north central or, or central Israel is the region uh, that was known as Samaria then and is still known as Samaria today. Uh, we don't know exactly which city in Samaria is referenced in verse 5. The English Standard Version has the city of Samaria with that, Samaria with that definite article, the. And there was a city with that name, but the original Greek text is better interpreted, a city. Uh, the definite article isn't there. So the fact is we don't know precisely which city is being referenced, and, and really its exact identity doesn't matter to interpreting what's going on here in this text. What we do know is that Philip's ministry brought great joy to a Samaritan city. It brought great joy to a Samaritan city, a city in the region of Samaria. In verses 6 to 8, we read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And by the way, uh, when you're going from Jerusalem anywhere, you're going down because the geographically the highest elevation in Israel is where Jerusalem is. So everything's down from there. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I love that statement. There was much joy in that city. So let's take a moment to understand what Luke has to tell us about Philip's ministry in that city. First of all, Luke tells us that Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. And the word that uh, Luke chose here is a little different than what we normally hear. This word that's translated proclaimed is caruso, and it, it means to... Uh, preach a message generally, um, but more specifically, it means to herald someone's arrival. So if you think back in ancient times to uh, a herald that would go ahead of a, a king or some dignitary, some big deal, you know, and they'd say, he's coming, he's coming, get ready. That's kind of what, what um, Philip is doing here. He's announcing um, the arrival of the Christ. Um, So as we'll see in just a moment, one of the things that Samaritans had in common with the Jews was an expectation that God's promised Messiah would one day come. In verse 12, we read this, he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Philip's proclamation was was accompanied by supernatural signs. Uh, Unclean spirits were coming out of many who had them. the, the demons were, Luke says, were crying out with a loud voice. Specific word he uses indicates that they were shrieking uh, in protest as the power of God drove them out. Uh, and additionally, paralytics and the lame were being healed. So maybe a little bit of a chaotic kind of situation. Things were, things were happening and things were happening fast. Demons were being exercised. People were being healed of long-term illnesses and paralysis. And no wonder um, then that it says they gave him their undivided attention. No wonder there was great joy in that city. Now there's something about the Samaritans. Excuse me. There's something about the Samaritans. 
And we can again make note that Philip going down to Samaria echoed Jesus' command in Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But what may not occur to us as we read these things is how incredibly bold a step it really was for Philip as a Jew to go to a Samaritan city and to preach the gospel to them. Because for a thousand years, ten centuries, there had been a rift between Jews and Samaritans. Thousand years. Not just a few generations, but a thousand years. Feuding like the Hatfields and McCoys. Generation after generation after generation after generation. It all began in uh, the 10th century BC, when after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided into two. There was the kingdom of Judea in the of uh, Judea in the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north. The two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south and all the other tribes of Israel to the north. Then in 722 BC, the Assyrians under Sargon destroyed the city of Samaria. And here's what they did. They deported a, a, a large percentage of the population of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, to Assyria. And then they imported from other nations that they had conquered um, a, a variety of people groups. So there was this sudden mix of, of people really from all over um, the, the Middle East. The Jews who remained in the area, eventually intermarried with these pagan foreigners. Additionally, Samaritan religion over time devolved to the place where they embraced the books of Moses, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but they basically rejected the the remainder of the Old Testament. Um, the rebuilding of the temple and the walls at Jerusalem brought opposition from the Samaritans. If you've studied the book of Nehemiah, for example, where Nehemiah leads uh, the people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, <clears throat> those who were coming against them and giving them all kinds of grief, threatening them, were Samaritans. Um, eventually, the Samaritans constructed a rival temple of their own on Mount Gerizim, set up their own system of worship. And I could bore you with a lot more detail, but what I want you to simply understand is that there had been 10 centuries of mounting rivalry, of resentment, sometimes of armed conflict. Orthodox Jews despised the Samaritans because they considered them to be religiously unfaithful, uh, racially impure and in many respects, politically hostile. It was shocking, for example, to um, the Jewish establishment that when Jesus told the story of uh, the man who had been robbed and beaten on, on, uh, a, on, the, on a highway, 
that the hero of the story became a Samaritan, what we think of as the good Samaritan. It was shocking to Jesus' listeners. Uh, The fact that Jesus stopped and uh, had a conversation with a woman at the well, uh, at Jacob's well in Samaria near the village of Sychar was shocking to the apostles. It was shocking to the woman uh, herself. So the summary statement in John 4 verse 9 that's part of that story of the woman at the well Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That attitude was generously reciprocated by the Samaritans. The Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. You know, when I was a young man, I I read a book by an author named Don Richardson. Its title was Eternity in Their Hearts. It made a big impression on me at the time. And one of the things I remember distinctly from that book is that... uh, He said that in every culture, God has placed a key that unlocks that culture to receive the gospel. And that it's then the task of a missionary or an evangelist to so familiarize themselves with the culture to which they've been sent that the day will come when they find that key and they'll be able to insert it in the lock and open up that culture to receive the gospel. And for Philip... Um, this was the announcement that Messiah had come. One central belief that the Samaritans had retained from their Jewish origins was the anticipation of a Messiah, a restorer. They called him the Taib, who was to come in fulfillment of God's promise through Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that, that he would one day send a prophet like Moses from among the people. And when he came, they were to listen to him. They were to to follow his leadership. And for Philip, this was that key to the hearts and minds of the Samaritans. And he announced to them the arrival of the Christ, the Taib, the, the Messiah. And they responded in droves. In verse 12, we read, when they believed, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. Specifically, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And in that moment, in that moment, the gospel broke out of the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea and broke through to the Samaritans. At verse 14, Luke says, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And I want to pause ever so briefly here and point out something in the text. And this is, again, something that you just, you would read right past. But this statement of, of Luke in Acts 8.14, that the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, it's, it's more than a just a matter-of-fact statement seems to be something of a technical expression that Luke employs to, to mark out each successive new stage in the advance of the gospel. And he, he used it first in reference to the day of Pentecost, uh, Acts 2.41, so those who received the word, his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That was the day of Pentecost. Acts 8.14 here, he uses it here in verse 14 of these first Samaritan believers, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. There's that phrase again. And we'll read the same phrase again in chapter 11 
After the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and his family and friends, when the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Same phrase. So on all three occasions, Luke uses this phrase to denote the successive opening of the kingdom, uh, first to Jews and then to Samaritans and, and then to Gentiles. And it's not said specifically here, but you remember that one of the things that Jesus had said to Peter was, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And on all three of these occasions, Peter is uh, intimately involved in what's going on. So, so Luke is quite clear. Samaria had received the word of God. Many had believed the message of the gospel as Philip announced it to them. And, and they had been baptized as a demonstration of their faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Christ. And yet, and yet, Luke intends this to capture the attention of his readers. Luke says in verse 16, the spirit had not yet fallen on them. Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Acts 8.16, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I would just say to you that this has to be one of the most remarkable, most extraordinary statements in the book of Acts, and really for that matter in the entire New Testament. So let's think about this. They had personally believed the gospel, okay? They personally believed the gospel. They had publicly declared their faith through baptism. They were Christians. Uh, no hint is given in the text that, that something in their, in their response to the gospel was defective or deficient. But they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Well, you might say, well, this is boring. What's so unusual about, about this? Is that in the New Testament, after the, the outpouring of the, the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the idea of anyone believing in Jesus and being baptized in his name without having also received the Holy Spirit is otherwise unheard of. And we'll see that more clearly in just a moment. So go with me to verses 14 to 17, and let's get the bigger picture. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that, that John was one who was sent from Jerusalem to Samaria as one of the representatives of the Jerusalem church and of the, the apostles, because an occasion is recorded in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus was passing through a village in Samaria, but was not received by the Samaritans. They, they didn't throw out the, you know, the welcome mat for Jesus. In fact, they asked him to move on. And so in response, John suggested that, hey, Jesus, why don't we call down fire from heaven and just destroy these guys? That, that was John's idea. That was his brilliant concept. Hey, let's nuke these guys, right? 
Good way to uh, deal with people that don't respond. And Jesus, of course, rebuked him. But now in Acts 8, John maybe has grown a little bit. He wants to see the Samaritans saved, not nuked. And so good on him for that, right? So through the ministry of the apostles, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. That's next. Peter and John, these two prominent apostles from Jerusalem, arrive in the city they do two things. First, they pray for the Samaritan believers that they'd receive the Holy Spirit. And secondly, then the apostles laid their hands on these Samaritan believers. And as they did, they received the Holy Spirit. Now check this out. Luke never indicates in any way on what basis Philip had previously concluded that these new believers had not received the Holy Spirit. There's no evidence given. The statement is just made. Neither does he give us any clue after the fact as to how the apostles were able to confirm that they now had received the Spirit. It's simply stated as a fact. And so we need to ask the question, what does the Bible generally teach about receiving the Spirit? What did they understand? Go back with me to Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 37 to 39. This is at the tail end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now when they, his listeners, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me just read that again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself promise of the Spirit is for all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So that last phrase is very clear. It's a very striking assertion. It's that the promise of the gift of the Spirit is to as many as the Lord our God calls. Jesus says, Jesus said on one occasion, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And there's that that matter of call, God calling us into relationship with Jesus. In other words, what, what Luke is, or what Peter is saying here in Acts chapter 2 is that God doesn't call anyone to himself without granting to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. You hear that? Whoever receives the call receives the Spirit. That's what Peter says, and it's very it's very clear. It's unequivocal. So you won't be surprised to know that what the Apostle Paul taught was identical to what Peter taught. In Galatians 3.2, he asked this rhetorical question, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is, of course, by hearing with faith. And then in verse 14, he adds, We receive the promised Spirit through faith. 
So the larger context of Paul's teaching makes clear that, that this faith he's talking about is not some act of faith subsequent to conversion, but it's the simple faith that responds to the gospel and results in our salvation. Paul was unequivocal when he wrote to the Roman believers, Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Unless the Spirit of God lives in you, you're not a Christian. But if you've believed the gospel, you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you can be confident that you have received the Holy Spirit. And to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, for in one spirit, and I think a better translation is by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Notice his use of the word all. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. No distinctions between Christians. The Greek verb tense in verse 13 indicates a one-time experience never to be repeated. So the clear and simple teaching of the New Testament is that every believer in Jesus receives the Spirit when they believe, not subsequently. Nowhere in, in Scripture is there any directive or even a hint that anyone who is trusted in Christ and has been born again should seek the gift of the Holy Spirit after they believe. It came, as it, as it were, with the download. So then what are we to make of the two-stage experience of the Samaritan believers? Why am I taking all this time to lay all of this information out for us? It's because I don't want you to ever be deceived into thinking that because you have not experienced what some Christians refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that comes after you've believed in Jesus and and includes ecstatic experiences like speaking in tongues or uh, prophesying, if there's that there's something lacking in your spiritual experience and you're therefore a second-class citizen, you're a second-class Christian. Those who believe that the baptism with the Spirit is generally an experience subsequent to conversion see this passage, obviously, as strong support for their view. And there's no need to deny, no need for us to deny, that that the Samaritan experience did, in fact, take place in two stages. But what I want you to understand this morning is that the incident in Samaria was neither typical to the New Testament generally, in in, in terms of what the, the New Testament teaches about salvation, nor is it normative for us. In other words, a two-stage experience is not the norm. On the contrary, it's atypical, it's unusual. And I really believe that the very reason that Luke chose to include it here is that it is unusual. There are no other occasions on which the apostles were ever called upon to perform this kind of what maybe we call it fruit inspection, you know, 
to come down from Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 8, for example, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, Philip shares the gospel with an official of the Ethiopian government. Uh, the guy believes in Jesus. Philip baptizes him, and he goes on his merry way. No apostle was called upon or sent to investigate his conversion or to lay hands on him so as to confer to him the Holy Spirit. So what was the issue in Samaria? Let me give you a couple more facts and then and then a conclusion. The text, listen carefully to this, the text does not tell us that the apostles were sent down from Jerusalem for the purpose of solving the problem of the Samaritans not having received the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're not told precisely why they were sent down. All we're told is that they journeyed from Jerusalem to Samaria when they heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God. That would have been news. Really? The Samaritans have received the word of God? we got to go down and check this out for ourselves. See, and I think in, in, in Acts 1-8, when Jesus said to the disciples, um, you know, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. <laughs> I, I think some of the apostles probably raised their eyebrows. I think they probably said, hmm, Samaria. They didn't say it out loud. They, they said it inside their own minds. Samaria, huh? not me. Now me, I'm not going to Samaria. And Jesus, we know you've, you, you, you like to go to Samaria. You like to talk to those women in Samaria. <laughs> We're not. We're not doing it. you got to be kidding me. A lot of that kind of thinking had to have been going on. So it's very possible now that Peter and John were simply on a fact-finding mission to see if what they had heard was actually true. And it's also possible that they didn't learn that the Samaritans hadn't received the Holy Spirit until after they had actually arrived. We're told that when they arrived, they prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's an important observation. Second, among the New Testament ideas behind the act of laying on of hands, when you, when you study the significance of that in all the various places in the New Testament where somebody lays hands on someone else. Among the, the, the ideas behind that are these, these ideas of identification and affirmation. Identification and, and affirmation. And what we read here is that the Spirit of God was given to the Samaritan believers simultaneously with the apostles laying hands on them. At the point of identification and affirmation between the Jerusalem church and the Samaritan church. So where does this lead us? What are we to be conclude about what's being or being told here in this passage? I shared with you earlier that the schism between Jerusalem and Samaria had persisted for centuries. Its roots ran deep. 
But now the Samaritans were being evangelized. They were enthusiastically responding to the gospel. It was an amazing moment in the mission of the early church. What would happen now? The gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jewish believers? As Michael Green put it, what, what if converts from two sides, the two sides of what he called the Samaritan curtain, I think that's a great word picture. What if converts from the two sides of the Samaritan curtain had found Christ without finding each other? What if there had developed a, a Jewish Christian church and a Samaritan Christian church unreconciled to each other that merely perpetuated that ancient rift, that ancient divide, that that resentment, that hostility, that racism, if you will. And that prospect may seem unthinkable in theory, but in practice it very well could have happened. This was a dangerous moment. We talked about another dangerous moment when there was a conflict between, remember, the Hebraic widows and the Hellenistic, the Greek widows in the church in Jerusalem, which led to the appointment of the seven Hellenistic men who were to administer that. That was a dangerous moment. It was a moment when the church could have split open along racial and ethnic lines. This is, again, a dangerous moment. What if they had each found Christ without finding each other? Isn't it reasonable to think that in order to avoid precisely this disaster, that God, who is the giver of the Spirit, temporarily withheld the Spirit from these Samaritan converts until until the apostles had come down to investigate, had prayed for them, had laid hands on them as an expression of fellowship, as an expression of identification and affirmation. Wasn't it essential that the apostles, having witnessed the genuine faith of the Samaritans, signaled to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that these Samaritan believers are the real deal? to be welcomed equally into the community of believers. See, there could very easily have been Jewish Christians who would still have no dealings with Samaritan Christians. And we know that in some countries today, that's that's true. I watched a movie recently about, um, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants in Ireland. And... <laughs> You know, and they both name the name of Christ, but they're killing each other and blowing each other up on a regular basis. What's up with that? And, and, and there's several examples around the world of, of this. But it's not by God's design. If there had been a Samaritan church that existed separately, from the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church. That circumstance would have been a complete denial of the New Testament principle of one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism. But instead, from from this point on, and God did a miraculous thing here, from this point on, Jews and Samaritans were to be admitted into the Christian community on the same terms and without distinction. There was one body because there was one spirit. Now allow me to just suggest as we wrap this up that there may be people in your life who you've chosen not to share the gospel with because you simply don't have faith to believe that they would ever receive the message of the gospel. You say, I can't see them ever coming to faith in Jesus. Uh, and I get that. But what if God is calling them and he would like to use you Uh, Is it possible that you are the one standing between them and the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Spirit and the hope of eternal life? Maybe you're the plug that's in the way. The Apostle Paul said that the gospel itself is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. So, So why don't we just get out of the way in those relationships Share the gospel with them and trust the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of saving them. Work we know we can't do. There also might be people in your life with whom you've chosen not to share the gospel because you simply wouldn't want those people in your church. Think about that. Just being honest here. But think also about the fact that uh, Jesus invited someone like you into his church. (laughs) Right? Amazing that he would do that. Scandalous, really. (laughs) Appalling in some cases that, that Jesus would invite people like you into his church. So, so why not, why don't we just stop barring the door and let Jesus build his church? And let him call whom he wills, as he promised he would. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you for this uh, surprising text. Thank you for opening the door to the Samaritans and letting the Jews see it and understand it, comprehend it, welcome it. And Lord, may we be people who are faithful to communicate the gospel to those that you motivate us to to share it with. And uh, to allow you to save people that we we don't expect. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your amazing grace. And thank you that you're still at work calling people into relationship with yourself. Let us be conduits of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.